House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Today we've got a returning guest and she's got a new book out and we're going to talk about that. And the book is called Death on Ocean Boulevard and it's inside the Coronado Mansion case. So, Caitlin Rother, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me back. Wow. So you, um, you're really getting into this, uh, um, these murder cases. Um, how did you decide to write about this case? Like, what brought you into it? Well, first of all, I just want to say that according to the Sheriff's Department, this isn't even a crime, let alone a murder. So the San Diego County Sheriff's Department has declared the case of Rebecca Zahau's death a suicide. So I just want to get that out of the way, <laughs> just up the front. <laughs> um, her family, however, is absolutely sure that she was murdered. So... I mean, what got me interested in this case is what got pretty much everyone interested in this case, and that is that uh, her boyfriend's brother, so her boyfriend is a, a rich guy named Jonah Shackney who owns this mansion. It's a historic mansion um, here in San Diego County called the Spreckles Mansion, and it was built by John D. Spreckles of the Sugar Fortune. He was at the time the richest man in the county. His family was the richest family in California. They built the house in 1908. So Jonah Shack and I bought this mansion when he was married to his second wife. They had a little boy named Max. And he continued, even after the divorce, to come to this mansion every summer because he normally lived in um, the Phoenix Scottsdale area in Arizona where it gets incredibly hot in the summer. So there are a lot of people, actually, who have second homes at, in Coronado during the summer so they can escape the heat. So he has this girlfriend named Rebecca Zahau. She's 32 years old, and she's beautiful, and she has quit her job as an ophthalmic technician to take care of him and little boy Max, uh, who's six years old. And also there are a couple teenage kids from his first marriage, who she does not get along with. Uh, she thinks they're very disrespectful to her. So there's quite a bit of conflict going on in, in the relationship with Jonah, not only because of the, the conflict with the teenagers, but also the conflict with uh, his ex-wives. They don't like Rebecca either. So there's quite a lot of conflict. And so the relationship is not doing well. And they basically said at the beginning of the summer, if, if things don't get better, we're going to have to you know, probably part ways at the end of the summer. So here we are. It's July. Uh, Rebecca's little sister, who's 13 years old, is out for a visit from Missouri and Max, and she get along well. Um, they're about to go to um, get ready to go to the beach and go to the zoo. Jonah is at the gym, and Rebecca is downstairs in a bathroom when she hears a crash, and the dog is barking. Um, this is a big dog, a 14-month-old Weimaraner, who is apparently so big that can knock, he can knock over an adult. He's very boisterous. So she comes out and she finds Max lying on the floor, surrounded by broken glass, and this glass uh, chandelier, which had been hanging from the second-story uh, ceiling, is lying next to him, along with a razor scooter and a soccer ball. 
So this little boy is not breathing and his heart is not beating. So she calls up to her sister, call 911, call 911. So she says she gives him a few breaths to do CPR. The paramedics come. Um, the boy is still unresponsive. So they give him a, you know, two shots of epinephrine, finally get him back. But he's been down for 25 or 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. So Jonah thinks the little boy has a chance of surviving because Rebecca says that she gave him CPR. Anyway, they take him to the hospital. Um, but Rebecca is not allowed to come because she doesn't get along with the little boy's mother. So she's kind of kept away from the hospital. She can't see this little boy who she loves like her own son. Um, I'm going to just skip ahead. Uh, her uh, Jonah's brother, Adam, who is a tugboat captain who um, lives in Memphis, he flies out to be supportive. Rebecca sends her little sister home because this is no time to have a vacation in the midst of all this going on with a little boy in the ICU. So uh, Rebecca and Jonah and Adam have dinner. Rebecca takes Jonah back to the hospital. She gives him a really long hug goodbye and then takes Adam back to the mansion. And according to Adam... They talk for a minute in the driveway. She goes into the main house, and he goes into the guest house where he's stayed before. He takes an Ambien. He has a 7-Up, Diet 7-Up, and he calls his girlfriend in Memphis, and he goes to bed. Next morning, he comes out. This is less than 48 hours after the little boy has apparently fallen over an interior railing. Nobody saw it. They still, to this day, don't know exactly what happened. Um, But he's still alive, hooked up to a bunch of machines. So Adam comes out of the guest house, and I should mention this is after he wakes up, pleasures himself to some porno on his phone, which he volunteers to the police, takes a shower, comes out, and sees uh, this naked body hanging from the exterior balcony by a red rope. Now, this is Rebecca. She's naked. She is bound. Her hands are bound behind her back. Her ankles are tied together, and she's got a gag, basically a T-shirt, wrapped around her neck on top of the rope on top of her hair. So he calls 911, runs into the kitchen, grabs a knife. This is all on the tape because he's called 911, so every the dispatcher can hear all this. He says, well, he's, he's going to drag this table over. He gets stands up on the table. Now, the table only has three legs because one leg is broken, stands up on this rickety wooden table and basically cuts Rebecca down and puts her down onto the grass of the courtyard and supposedly starts doing compressions for CPR. Now, remember, her hands are tied behind her back. Her her legs are, are bent at the knees, so it's a pretty awkward position to be doing compressions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the, the police and the paramedics show up, and it goes from there. Basically, Adam calls 911 and says, I got a girl, hung herself in the guest house. So at the outset, he says it's a suicide, but the police think immediately it's suspicious and call in the, the sheriff's department homicide unit. That's well, why that's 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 why I got interested. It's quite it's quite a, that's just the start of it. That's that's what we heard on the, you know it, this yeah. came out little by little, but naked well, woman bound and gagged hanging yeah. from this courtyard. Well, that's something that happens every day. Right? <laughs> uh, almost uh, no one's ever heard of this happening anywhere else. So it's well, it's very rare for for a woman to be rare if, if anyone has ever heard it at all hanging naked outside like that 
Yeah. Well, so um, the particulars, when you say she's bound and she's gagged and, and, and hanging, um, that in itself makes people question it, right? Exactly, because, yes. You know, who, who commits suicide that way? Um, and, and logistically, and how, how yeah. would she do that? Yeah. So, so then the question is, like when you started out the show here, you were talking about um, that the, according to the sheriff's, department there is no crime this was right. suicide yes. so so now the police especially the detectives um themselves are trained in this sort of a you know uh, mm-hmm. criminal activities so how did they come to that conclusion when there's such suspicion centered you know just even by the way she is like you were saying right uh, bound and gay so that in itself is a question so how did they presume she got that way doing it herself. Right. Okay, so, you know, I had access to the entire sheriff's investigative file. I had a a couple different sources provide me with that, and they were not from the sheriff's department, obviously. They kept a lot of their investigation um, private, and they said that they were doing that out of um, respect for the Zahal family, because they didn't want to further traumatize them. So a lot of this information about the investigation was not released. Um, and I, that's why I was able to write a book about it, because even if we jump ahead, there's a civil trial where the Zahaus file um, a wrongful death suit against Adam Shackney for wrongful death. Um, they believe it's a murder, but they didn't even have, you know, a solid way to accuse Adam and and actually they when they initially filed the suit it was also against Max's mother and Max's mother's sister so the three of them were initially named in the lawsuit but the two women were ultimately dismissed but they didn't even have enough information about the investigation to even say for sure how they did it to Rebecca because the the sheriff's investigation was kept so you know so private essentially so you know the only reason that that I know about what happened is because I got this file and I didn't get this, you know, it wasn't something that I could really talk about because until it got into court, nothing really came out. I mean, they had a, a news conference, which I was not even allowed to come to because I don't have a press pass anymore because I, I used to work for the newspaper here, but I don't anymore. And I, they wouldn't even let me in. So I couldn't even hear them explain to the media why they thought that. So I had to read news coverage, and later the sheriff's department put that part of it online, but not the Q&A. So basically all they said was, well, there's no fingerprints or DNA linking um, except for Rebecca's at the scene. And there were notes on her uh, phone, which, uh, in fact, you know, I, I don't even remember, to be honest, if they even, they didn't release the notes on her phone. I, the first I heard about the content of the notes on her phone didn't come out until the trial, in 2018. So like I said, it was like, why did they come up with this? That was a secret for a long time. So I'm going to skip ahead and let you know what I know now. And that is, so there was no DNA or fingerprints linking Adam to the bedroom where um, her hanging rope was anchored to the leg of a bed, number one. Um, But by the same token, there was also no DNA or fingerprints on the knife that we know he used to cut her down. So that's kind of an odd thing. They, they took a DNA 
um, swab of the door where there was a note written, painted in black paint that said, she saved him, can you save her? So they decided that was a suicide note, even though they didn't know really what it meant. <laughs> and to this day, they still don't even really want to speculate because they don't know. But who writes a suicide note in the third person, you know, and in such an angry and taunting tone? Why, if she committed suicide, would she do it that way? And so anyway, but they said, why, if somebody murdered her, would they do it that way? So they turned it around. They said, hey, if, if somebody was going to kill her, they, you know, why would they do it to draw so much attention to, to it? And then they said um, she had lost a lot of weight. She told uh, a witness, and she, they didn't mention who that was, but it was um, her sister who gave them this information in an interview. Why She lost weight. She wasn't sleeping. There was trouble in the relationship. There was no one else's DNA or fingerprints, and she was depressed and felt responsible uh, for Max's death. And, and the thing was, though, that Max was still alive when this happened. He was ultimately declared brain dead, but not for another few days. So to answer your question, they, they really didn't say much. But, you know, the police who responded to that 911 call were the same police that responded to the little boy's fall two days earlier. So they, they, had a, they knew that this previous incident had happened, and they basically put them together and said, well, she, she clearly felt bad because she was the only adult at home. Yeah, that's all believable, right? Uh, you know, she could. She, you, know, mm -hmm. yeah. that, it, it, you know, that all totally makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. she's upset about what happened. She's in a, uns you know, the relationship's kind of sour. Right. Things, there's problems. And, yeah, okay, that, that all goes fine. But the circumstances of the death, it, it, it just, you know, that's not what makes sense. I mean, why wouldn't she just overdose pills? Or right. if she was going to hang herself, what would she, you know, just the whole Why idea. do it that way? Why do it naked? And yeah. why with the bindings and the gag? And You know, once we get to the civil trial, um, you know, there were experts who testified um, for, for the Zahaus that said, okay, well, and this came out actually earlier than this, too. The, the Zahaus had her body exhumed and went on the Dr. Phil show. The Dr. Phil show uh, paid for this and brought Dr. Cyril Wecht uh, to do a second autopsy. And, you know, he's that renowned pathologist who's worked on many controversial cases. Yeah. And he said he thought she had, you know, um, he, he, he didn't say this initially for sure that he thought she was murdered, but basically raised the question, well, there are some injuries on her that don't really make sense for the suicide scenario. She doesn't have, her neck's not broken. You know, she has some fractured cartilages. Um, and there are these four subglial hemorrhages on her head, which look like they're from a blunt force, you know, tra trauma in instrument kind of thing. It's like she was hit over the head. And so he thought that she was probably strangled and then tossed over the side because he, he, he just didn't see that the injuries were um, consistent with the suicide scenario. And then when he testified at trial, he actually went further and said, he thought for he thought for sure that it was a murder and that she had been strangled and that hit, hit over the head, strangled, tied up and strangled and then lowered essentially over the side because she wasn't decapitated either partially or 
uh, entirely and her neck wasn't broken and it was a nine foot two inch fall. How would she even know how, you know, much rope to leave herself so she didn't hit the ground? How would she, you know, rest her weight? There's like one toe print next to the railing. I mean, there's so many questions about why it doesn't make sense. Um, but the sheriffs, um, I left this out about the, the news conference, they had a female deputy demonstrate how it could have happened, that she could have tied her wrists together in front of her, slipped one of the wrists out, put the, the bindings behind her, and slipped her wrist back in. So that's how they said it could have happened. But the Zahaus expert, um, the one who you know did a demonstration in the, in the courtroom, said that those were not the same knots, that they were way too simple. They weren't tied like that. He demonstrated how he thought the knots had been tied and that, and by someone else based on the way that they were facing, the way they were tied, because they're slip knots and you have to pull on the bottom of it to make it work properly. So anyway, I mean, there's just so much, there's so many unanswered questions and there's so much inconsistency that that's why I'm not actually taking a position in the book because I'm not convinced either way. Honestly, <laughs> do you think there was any corruption in this case? Well, there have been allegations to that. Um, does the house have have accused and there and you know that is actually a theory that's in the community. I had someone come up to me in Home Depot and say, "You've got to prove who bribed the sheriff." <laughs> you know, <laughs> but the sheriff says, "You know that is a." hugely insulting and I of course I didn't nope nobody gave me any money you can look at my campaign um donation statements and I did and there's nothing there from the Shackney family um Jonah Shackney was um accused of having undue influence over the investigation because of his wealth that it was you know that it was cut short because he was pressuring them um he's actually there's a tape of his um, one of the interviews that he had with detectives where he says, you know, it'd be really great if you guys could clear me as a suspect publicly because this is really killing me in my business. The share, you know, my shares are tanking. And and they said, well, you know, we'll see what we can do. We can't promise that. That's not something we would normally do. But he did ask. So so that, you know, that's where that came from. Does the House also say that, you know, initially we thought maybe it was incompetence that they came up with this suicide ruling when it's so clearly obvious that it was a murder. So now we think, okay, if it's not incompetence, it's got to be corruption. Something must, something else must be going on. We don't know what it is, but, you know, if maybe there was a bribe. And I said, well, you mean like money, cash, money? He goes, no, I think it was more subtle than that. <laughs> so they have sued the sheriff's department now. So... They they won the civil jury, jury verdict against Adam Shackney. Um, his insurance company settled with the Zahaus against his wishes. By the way, Adam did not want to settle. He wanted to have appeal the the verdict and and clear his name, um, because he's been you know painted as a murderer and a sexual deviant. Because not only did the Zahaus accuse him of of strangling and killing Rebecca, but they also have accused him of sexually assaulting her with the handle of a knife that was found on the floor in the bedroom where she was hanging from. Um, so he wanted to clear his name, but he basically lost that chance when his insurance company settled. And so um, the house said, well, this isn't about money. We want 
the sheriff's department to reopen the case, the criminal case, because we absolutely believe that she did not do this to herself, that someone else killed her. Well, and as I explained at the beginning, you know, there's not an, there's not enough evidence, forensic evidence to raise this case to a criminal threshold. And, and even Keith Greer, there's a house attorneys will, 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 will acknowledge that. So they, they still need more evidence in order to, to bring this up to a criminal threshold because, you know, the civil standard for finding, um, you know, to win a jury verdict, you don't need 12 out of 12 jurors. You need nine, which they got. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a more likely than not kind of standard as opposed to beyond a reasonable doubt. But what did the house go after? Like, what were they saying that Adam did? Um, and why would he do it? He's the brother that came in to, you know, uh, be there for the his brother's son who's, who right. fell and all that stuff. So all of a sudden he's there visiting and all of a sudden he's going to kill her. Like what, what, what was the reasoning? Well, what they argued in court was that uh, because he admitted to the police that he had been watching porno that morning, um, Keith Greer during the trial basically said, well, you know, we have this knife handle, which has a red stain up to the second rivet on the handle. This is a, a steak knife that was found. There were two knives found on the bedroom floor. And then he had a knife downstairs where he said he cut her down. So there were three knives. But this one knife, which is, you know, like the same size as a tampon. So think of a handle being that small. Okay, so uh, because his expert found a red stain in these photos and a white, whitish looking kind of discharge, the only blood that they could find, she had no injuries, um, bleeding injuries, but she was on her period. So they said, well, the only way that this blood could have gotten on this knife handle is if he assaulted her with it. And the medical examiner's office said there was no sexual trauma, you know, meaning there was no, you know, semen or anything found, but, or any, you know, tissues being ripped or whatever. But, you know, this is a thin knife handle. So they said, well, he, he assaulted her with it. Um, He was, there was some kind of confrontation that he must have come into the house, watched her take a shower in the master bathroom Um, which has glass walls to the shower, must have been watching her. There was some sort of confrontation because there are several drops of blood um, in front of this bedroom, which is on the other side of the house. So she had to literally, like, she had a towel, apparently, because they found a towel and these drops of blood on the carpet in the hallway. So they think, well, she was taking a shower, somehow got called out of the room. There was a confrontation. She stood there long enough for these drops of blood to fall, and it's right near where the bedroom door was painted with that message. So they say, you know, there was a confrontation. Things went bad. He, she tried to run. One of the neighbors heard a woman crying for help around 1130 PM that night. Um, and then he hit her over the head. There was a struggle. He hit her over the head. Uh, so she was partially, you know, incapacitated. She um, woke up, she was tied up, and she took this knife. So they had this other knife that they were using as evidence. They said there was this weird pattern 
positioning of her fingertips on the blade, not on the handle, but on the blade, as if she had turned it, you know, outwardly and tried to cut herself free from the ropes, except there's no cut marks on the ropes. So they have the positioning on the knife, but no cut marks on the rope. But anyway, this is their story. Then um, he basically uh, gagged her and, you know, tossed her over the railing. That's, Hmm. that's their story. And then, you know, the next morning he was masturbating to the porn because he was excited about what he had done. That was their, that was their argument. (laughs) Well, what were their, what was the motive, but was it just that he's uh, a sexual pervert deviant that there was a confrontation that went bad. That, that was their argument. But did he have a history of this? Like, was he known? Well, okay. Okay. And so where did and he has jump? a girlfriend, by what? the way, what? he has, he, and during the, during the trial, um, the attorney tried to basically say, well, she's not really your girlfriend, is she? She's, you know, she's 17 years older than him. She's a nurse. You know, he, he was making it sound like she was, you know, basically prescribing him drugs and that they didn't really have a real relationship because they didn't live together. They weren't married. Um, they'd been seeing each other for a long time. She'd never met his parents. She wasn't really, you know, brought to family events, um, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if that really matters anyway. Plenty of serial killers have had girlfriends <laughs> and wives. <laughs> some moves, I'm just, some I'm just right? letting you know what this is the house attorney was accusing. And, and so Adam calls out, hey, Mary, are you my girlfriend? And Mary is sitting in the gallery, and she's like, yes. So I talked to Mary. I actually interviewed Mary for the book. Um, and, I, you know, I have a picture of them on my website, the two of them, and they have been together for a long time. She is older than him, and they've never been married, but they live right down the, near each other. They have two houses because they choose to live that way. And, yeah, frankly, yeah. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, yeah. I've, I've been in a relationship with my partner for nine years, and we don't live together. I'm sorry. Does that mean one of us is going to kill someone else? I don't know. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like, no, I, I, I think that's, that's kind that's of a, a choice, right? But that's, 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 yeah. that's works for us. It works for them. So, I mean, that to me... You know, that's just what they argued. So, right. right. Did did you ever? Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, um, message or suicide uh, uh, note on the mirror. Like, did you ever come to figure out what you think it means? Well, you know, I don't. I I did this book as a journalist, and I don't generally put my opinions into my books, and I didn't specifically on this one because, um, like I said, I I don't want to take sides. So I, I basically quote other people, what they think, and that is, you know, there's lots of different things that could be. There's one theory um, that, okay, I, my, one thing I will say is I think this was a staged scene. So it was either staged, it was either a homicide staged to look like a suicide or it was a suicide staged to look like a homicide because neither scenario makes sense on its own. <laughs> there's, like I said, too many conflicting things. And so... You know, there's one theory that um, Rebecca was angry. This this is something that the detective mentioned to Jonah during their interview. You know, what if she was angry with you? You know, what if she thought you blamed her? And then, you know, she was angry. And so she did this because, you know, she was angry at you. And so I asked Jonah, I said, well, what do you think about that? He goes, yeah, I've heard that theory before. And I said, maybe that this is a message that only you will understand. He says, yeah, I've heard that before. And I go, well, what, what would that be? He goes, I don't know. 
And I said, okay, well, did you guys ever have any bondage in your relationship or watch any movies about that or talk to each other about, it? you know, he said, no, no, he said, not with me. But Adam is convinced that this is shibari. This is a, like a Japanese form of self-tying. It's kind of an erotica uh, slash art form. Um, mm. And so I thought that was interesting. <laughs> but there was no, you know, there was because there was no uh, Internet browser history on her computer of her ever looking up suicide or looking up self-tying or anything like that. Um, so, you know, that, that's often something that gets people in trouble. I, I've, I've written books about that where the killer, you know, looks up how do I stage a a murder to look like an accident. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And that's, I find that on his internet browser and he had thought he cleared it with this special software, but it didn't work or something. You know, that was literally in one of my books. Then no one can have her. Oh, I was writing a book about a murder. You know, it was a novel. I was doing research, <laughs> but there was nothing like that in this case where it was clear that Rebecca had been looking for anything. I mean, the only thing, you know, her history was, you know, shopping, spas, clothes, banking, Facebook. So. Now, you have a personal connection to this case. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, when when this first broke, um, this was about uh, 12 years after my husband um, hung himself in a motel in Mexico. And this was. Sorry to hear that. Thank you. This was right after I broke off the relationship with him. He was a recovering alcoholic. He'd been sober for a year, but he relapsed. And I had told him, I said, I just cannot go through this again. We had been through so much. And it was a total mm -hmm. roller coaster relationship. I had to call 911 on him twice. Um, once because he had threatened to basically shoot himself over the phone while I was in the newsroom at the newspaper working. It was, I had to go back and forth on the two lines with the 911 dispatcher. It, it, that was pretty horrible. And then, you know, I, he was in sober living. I let him come back and he pit, threatened me with a bat. So, I mean, I had had pretty much oh. enough <laughs> and, I, you know, so he went and got sober and came back and, you know, things were not going well. And I just, so I just ended it and I said, y you're going to have to go. I can't do this anymore. And so he called me, he was in his, in Mexico and I was still concerned about him because he had threatened to commit suicide before. And I said, are you feeling like you want to hurt yourself? And he said, not right now. That was the last conversation we had. And then three, three days later, they found his body in this motel room. And, um, you know, I was, you know, really upset and, you know, but anyway, so I had, um, you know, my own experience to draw from. And so when this happened, I mean, I know what a person acts like before they do this to themselves. And his behavior was all over the map. He, he was going on and off different antidepressants and he was, you know, started drinking again. And so he was a mess. And I talked to him on the phone and he was just, he didn't even make any sense. He was just talking nonsense. And I think, he, you know, he had a psychotic break, essentially, is how I see it. And so, you know, Rebecca's family, though, said she, she talked to her sister at about 10 p.m. that night. And then Jonah um, left her a voicemail 
about 10 to 1 a.m. He didn't actually talk to her, though, because she didn't call back. So we have a time frame of, you know, 10 o'clock is the last time she talked to her sister. But she sounded fine. She said, I'll talk to you guys, you know, tomorrow. Um, i got to get up early, go to the hospital. And, you know, she said, I love you to her sister, both of her sisters. And, nope, they thought she was, you know, fine. She she just needed to, she just was concerned about how Jonah was doing. So according to the sheriff's department, the reason that she uh, killed herself is because she got this voicemail from Jonah saying, essentially, just got really bad news from the doctor that the best scenario is that Max is never going to walk or talk again. And so that's what they said. You know, she clearly did this because she felt guilty. And so the house said, well, but she never said she felt guilty. She wasn't depressed. She, she was always happy. She was a strong person. She was a religious person. She went to Bible college. She just never would have done this. So, you know, I, 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 as I got into my research, though, and this, this was years later when I really started doing interviews, I interviewed Jonah, I interviewed an ex-boyfriend of hers who she told um, that she had been kidnapped. So she disappeared for a couple of days. She's calling him, calling him and saying, um, you know, they've got me, they took me, I've got, I'm, they've got something over my eyes, I don't know where I am. He believed that she was kidnapped because she was crying on the phone and she sounded so upset. And I said, you know, God, that sounds familiar to me because that's something my husband did. You know, he disappeared and he, I didn't know where he was. And turns out, you know, I drove around looking for him at the bars because I thought, well, maybe he's drinking again and he's hiding it from me. And he came back and he goes, they picked the police, picked me up and they took me to the station and they did a cavity search. And he was crying. And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know what to believe. But he seemed like it was true, you know. So I'm starting to see some of these behavioral similarities. They both got arrested for shoplifting, Rebecca mm -hmm. and my husband, in Phoenix and went through the same diversion program. She told lots of different stories to her family, to Jonah, to her ex-husband, to her boyfriend. She's, she's showing different faces to different people. So my husband was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, and so... When I looked that up online, what are the symptoms? Lying, stealing, <laughs> addictive behaviors, sexual acting out, stuff like that. So I, I just started seeing some similarities, and I'm, I'm not trying to diagnose her. She was never diagnosed with anything. Um, but, she, you know, there are some definite behavioral parallels that I've seen. And I'm, so I'm not saying she committed suicide. I'm not saying she had that diagnosis. But I'm just saying I did see some, some similarities. And I do mention that in the book. And I talked with Jonah about that as well and her boyfriend. And we all just sort of talked about it, you know, kind of tried to process what really happened and what was going on in her mind. And was she capable of doing this? And Jonah initially said he didn't think she would have committed suicide because it, she, he was in the hospital with her, his son and she was his support system. She wouldn't have done that to me, you know. But now he's convinced she did commit suicide. The, hmm. the, the, the old boyfriend, Michael Berger, though, is still convinced that she didn't commit suicide because he said, that's not the person I knew. And her whole right. family says that. So, yeah, stuff, you know, because uh, now I've, I've written 20 books and I know what it's like uh, to do a true crime book and to put out uh, things that are personal so mm -hmm. in a way when you do that you're you're put, making yourself vulnerable 
mm-hmm. um, you know that. So how do you know how much you want to put out and, and to what level? Well, I, you know, I just, I didn't really go into that much detail. I mean, I, I need people to understand that I have this personal knowledge and context that I used as a lens to examine this case. And I think people have a right to know that and that's full disclosure. So, I mean, I kind of touched on, on what happened to me, but I mean, I have a short memoir called Secrets, Lies, and Shoelaces. If people want more information, they can read that and, you know, but I didn't, you know, it's 58 pages and it's, it's not 58 pages in, in Death on Ocean Boulevard. It, I just sort of summarized my, you know, my story so that people understand that I do know what I'm talking about and that I have been through this. Um, I also have professional knowledge of suicide and several of my books, uh, you know, have people who committed suicide in them. And I also have um, professional knowledge about stage scenes. <laughs> Stage yeah. suicides, stage murders, um, both. So I just wanted people to know that. And frankly, if anybody's going to try to say something to me about what happened to my husband, then that's more about them than me. That's just not a nice person, you know. And so far, mm-hmm. uh, I haven't found anybody to say anything cruel or, and they shouldn't, you know. And if they do, then then they are not nice people. And that's, you know, I, I, you know. It's not easy for me to to talk about, but I think, you know, as a journalist, I, you know, and it's been 22 years, so I have some distance from it. And I processed all of it by writing the memoir first. And I wasn't able to finish writing the memoir actually until this trial was over. So it really did help me get some closure on my own situation. Right. Well, we've got a lot of not very nice people listening, so maybe somebody will. <laughs> well, I hope not. I hope people will have some class. <laughs> you know. You know, well, you know, the way it's been uh, the last little while, I don't know. It's just well, kind of crazy. You know, it sometimes. is crazy, yes. What, what's your feeling on Jonah? Did you, did you, um, how do you feel about him? And how was he about the whole suicide murder thing? Like, was he devastated or did it did it appear did he appear like you thought he would or uh it was very difficult to get him to talk i mean nobody else could get him to talk except for uh he did one very brief limited kind of conditional interview with 2020 but i mean all the other shows there were like seven of them dateline or a bunch of documentaries they all said uh jonah declined to comment so I wasn't really expecting him to talk to me. I, I wanted, you know, I definitely tried to reach everybody, all the major players, because I always do. Um, I'd sat down with Adam Shackney for three and a half hours, and I said to him, I'd really like to interview your brother. Oh, he's not going to talk to you. I'm like, well, I, I'd like for you to ask him, <laughs> would you do that? Because I don't really, you know, I don't have his phone number, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so eventually, you know, what I did is I called, um, I, he had a PR woman sitting in the courtroom, Jonah, who, because Jonah helped pay for Adam's trial expenses. Um, so, you know, and, and Jonah has an image to protect. So he has had this PR firm. And so I had her card and I called her, but it was difficult to get a message to him because that PR firm no longer worked for him. And so I had pretty much finished writing the book <laughs> and I didn't have very much time left before I had, I was editing it, trying to cut, you know, like 10,000 words out of it. Cause I was right too long. And, um, he emailed me and I was like, Oh my God. So I definitely wanted to talk to him because he hadn't talked to anybody else. And I really wanted to hear his perspective. 
on Rebecca and their relationship and, and Adam and the trial. And so we, we talked eight times and, you know, like two hours each time I had to rewrite, you know, huge portions of the book. I had to, you know, cut stuff out. I had to add stuff. I had to rewrite stuff because I really felt like it added a very important perspective. Um, you know, and I just got this uh, voicemail the other day from uh, Max's mother's sister, basically calling me a terrible person and that she knows that Jonah paid me to write this book and this and that. I'm like, no, I, I didn't talk to her because I just got a voicemail, but uh, I just want to say for the record that Jonah Shack and I did not pay me any money. I, I contacted him. Uh, he was actually very cautious and wasn't even sure he wanted to talk to me until he knew he could trust me. And the, way, the reason he said, he, you know, he decided he could trust me is because I said I wasn't taking sides and I was being objective. So that includes not stating opinions on what I think about people. Um, I just feel like what he told me, though, added very important context. And during the trial, he seemed very distant. Um, he didn't really express any deep feelings for Rebecca, um, you know, and he was clearly there to defend his brother who was on trial. Um, but, you know, he, he gave me a lot of insight, I thought. And, um, you know, he didn't say anything bad about Rebecca. He, he wasn't there to bad, bad mouth her or say anything negative. And he's, he even said, you know, if there was somebody out there, he said he he didn't tell me this. He said this to the detectives early on, but he said, you know, he initially wondered if he was the target um, because he said, you know, if somebody was trying to hurt me by hurting the two people who are the closest to me, then they sure, you know, were successful. Hmm. But he, you know, he cried on the phone when we talked, when he was talking about her and hugging him for the last time and how he regretted, um, you know, leaving her that voicemail that he should have just said, can you call me? So. Hmm. Wow. Quite a story. Um, now, do you have a website that people can come find you? Yes, I do. It's it's CaitlinRother.com. And I've got um, a virtual tour calendar on my blog, which basically has links to every a virtual event that I've done, we've recorded it since I have to do all of this from my house. There's no, I'm going to have one in-person signing this weekend. It'll be my first and only one, but I'm doing all kinds of events and podcasts and, and there's been media coverage and all kinds of stuff of me talking about this case. If you want more, <laughs> it's all there and there's more to come. Um, so I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, to talk about my book because it's tough during COVID. I got to say, this has been a real challenge. Oh, yeah. Things are different mm -hmm. for everybody. How, how is it for you on the writing side and, and things like that? I mean, does it kind of get in your way there? Or? Well, I can't do any true crime stories. The courthouses were all closed and we were all locked in our houses. So I wrote a crime novel. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I, I basically I lost a contract um, for a book I was writing on the San Diego frozen zoo, which was a fascinating topic. I hope to be have the contract reinstated at some point because I did a huge I spent a whole year on it already. Um, but uh, I lost that contract. I immediately started this crime novel and I and I wrote 120,000 words. So I'm wow. in the editing phases right now because it's too long. But yeah. that's what yeah. kept me sane. 
Yeah, yeah, strange time for everyone, but, you know. Well, it's been a pleasure. Um, well, thank you. Yes, it has. The, the book we're talking about is Death on Ocean Boulevard, and our guest is the author, Caitlin Rother. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin. Uh-huh. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.